seven, six, six, Welcome to our talk, a podcast on the history, theory, and practice of international relations. I'm your host, Elon Kluger. This week, I spoke with Professor Lorena DeVita. Professor DeVita is an assistant professor in the history of international relations at the University of Utrecht. She's the author of Israel Politique, German-Israeli Relations, 1949 to 1969. I love this conversation as Professor DeVita does an excellent job at explaining the complex interactions between the two German states, Israel, and many other nations, which makes for excellent reading and conversation. One last note, if you enjoy my podcast, I would love it if you would leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts as it helps others find the show. Thank you. What led to your interest in German-Israeli diplomacy? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me here. I'm absolutely thrilled to be a guest in the podcast. And to answer your question, my interest is not just an interest in German-Israeli diplomacy, but an interest in the history of German-Israeli relations. And what led me to be interested in this history was simply the fact that I could not understand how two states like Germany and Israel in the aftermath of the Holocaust could become the very strong partners that we see today. How is this even possible? How did it all start? These were really my questions because for me the process, difficult, long, but still, the process of German-Israeli rapprochement after the Holocaust remains one of the most remarkable developments of the 20th century. In your book covering that subject, you use something called the paracentric view of diplomatic history. So what exactly uh, is the paracentric view? Yeah, so that's a really uh, important question, actually. And I will divide this into two. There is one element, which is about my uh, book's contribution to a pericentric view of the Cold War. And there is also an approach that I use and which is very important for my work, which is about dealing with understanding diplomatic history as new diplomatic history. So using new diplomatic history methods. So I'll just essentially answer these in, in order. Just to make some clarity, new diplomatic history is an approach that focuses on questioning what do we understand as diplomacy? Who do we see as a diplomat? Uh, and the whole approach, which is uh, now very vibrant and consists of a network, journal, conferences, it's really about expanding the range of actors, places, and times and modes of investigation when dealing with the history of international relations. So it's really about broadening the lens and scope of the study of international relations history, including new actors, including new locations that one wouldn't immediately think of when writing traditional diplomatic history. So concretely for my book, this means that when I was writing Israel Politik, I was not just paying attention to the highest echelons of political power, but I really also tried to focus on the mid and lower level diplomatic personnel 
personnel who I really saw as being located at the heart of these relations and making them. But it's even more than this because the book then engages with policies and decisions of actors from the propaganda, the intelligence, the trade sectors, as well as private individuals and this inclusion of the propagandists, of the NGO members, economists, even lawyers, uh, was for me very, very important to as a sort of addition to the traditional political and diplomatic personnel whose uh, works and papers, of course, I also included. But it did really help me to see how these mix of actors participated in the shaping of German-Israeli relations. So this is why you see that some of the interactions that I portray in the book take place in restaurants, for example, in Moscow, or at a Chinese cultural exhibition, uh, especially between East German and Israeli representatives. So this is uh, it's just to give you an example. In terms of um, the pericentric view of the Cold War, uh, this is also very important for the book. This conception of Pericentrism is something that was introduced in this way by Tony Smith in an article on the journal Diplomatic History. And essentially the approach and what Smith was arguing was that it's crucial to understand the Cold War by not only focusing on the United States and the Soviet Union, and that really many other countries that we usually think of as the junior allies in the Western or Eastern Bloc, that in fact, they were playing a key and very, very important role in intensifying, expanding, and in a sense, also prolonging the struggle between East and West. So Israel Politik, because it focuses on the two German states and the relations with Israel, um, is really very much contributing to this uh, intention to expand our understanding of the Cold War, also by looking at so-called minor players like the two, two German states uh, and how they projected the Cold War onto the Middle East. So this is my uh, overall answer. So both about the new diplomatic history and the pericentric approach to Cold War studies. And was there an issue when you're looking at more minor players or less of the standard players, just in terms of actual diplomacy, was there an issue in finding archival sources for them? Because I would imagine that most of the archives are filled with things that would be part of the standard diplomatic or political history. That's a really interesting question. So, and just to be clear, I started from the traditional archives, right? So for me, the archives of the foreign ministry, both of East and West Germany, were absolutely crucial. I spent a lot of time there uh, and they were absolutely fundamental. The same with some of the Western allies. So I did look at the uh, foreign office, British foreign office papers. I spent many months in the United States looking both uh, at the National Archives, but uh, also many presidential libraries covering all the presidents of, of the time that I was investigating. The same with the Russian sources that I could get my hands off. These were, let's say, traditional sources. What I tried to do, however, was to take yeah inspiration from other sources and archives as well. In terms of archives for East Germany, but this was also very much related to how East German politics worked. I, for example, spent a lot of time also by looking at East German propaganda. I have a note on the sources at the end of the book, and there I really explain that I see, for example, East German propaganda, not just as an addendum, as something to be added on, 
but as an integral part of the East German strategy, also in international politics. Other elements that were, so this is just one example, but you uh, can imagine also dealing with the East German newspapers or cultural initiatives organized by both East and West Germany in their relations with the partners. And also in terms of the attempt to step outside this traditional framework, something that helped me very much in that was also trying to organize oral history interviews. Again, some of my interlocutors, whom all I thank wholeheartedly for, for having spoken with me, because that was very crucial. So some of them were, in a sense, very traditional speakers. Uh, so I spoke with the first uh, Israeli ambassador to Germany. But even then, I also tried to think outside the box. And I was very happy that I could talk, for example, with two of the three secretaries of the West German Chancellor, Adenauer. And these are, you know, the secretaries are not someone that we really think of when writing diplomatic history. And yet these are very often the people who type the very documents that we use as a base for our inquiries. And also one of them, Hannelores Hegel, after having been active as a secretary of the chancellor for several years, she also was part of the team who moved to Israel when the first German embassy there opened. So in a sense, she had a lot more uh, expertise, I think, uh, and also an interesting perspective than one would usually think of. So was it difficult to find sources? Not entirely, no, but it did require a little bit of thinking about who my interlocutors could be, how could I trace also the paths of the people who were maybe not at the top of the diplomatic echelons, but who still I thought were very interesting and I wanted to know more about them. Going to that question of reconciliation between West Germany and Israel, what led to the sort of standard imp interpretation of that as mostly a question of morality, whereas in international politics, normally morality takes at least a uh, backseat to power political concerns? Yeah, that's another very, very important question. And the reason why this German-Israeli reconciliation process is usually portrayed and understood in terms of morality it has to do with the legal and political context in which this first context between the Federal Republic of Germany and Israel, most importantly, is the signing of a reparations agreement in German, in Hebrew, in 1952. And this is very, very important because at that time, there was no legal framework that obliged Germany to sit down with Israel and talk about reparations. And by the way, it was not just with Israel, but also with the Jewish Claims Conference. But the fact that West Germany did agree to sit down and that an agreement was signed and that this agreement was also expanded on later during the years was really a crucial element and something that, as I mentioned before, was not really something that West Germany was forced to do from a legal perspective. So it took political will and this will was not only German, of course, you know, of course, the Israeli um, intentions were crucial in that respect. There were also other players involved, but unquestionably it was an important gesture. And for example, one that former Nuremberg uh, prosecutor Ben Ferenc also described in, a, in an article as a milestone in international morality. This also has very important factual uh, basis. So, And this is 
also very important to to this day. Did East Germany ever seriously consider also paying reparations after West Germany did? Yeah, well, that's another important question. And the answer is Yes, but but it's a complicated story. And I think it's important in this connection to remind uh, our listeners that on the one hand, so West Germany and Israel did reach this agreement already in 1952. Nothing of the sort was possible with East Germany, despite several Israeli attempts to try and uh, negotiate with the East Germans as well. But at the same time, I think it's important to also remember that there have been contacts with the future East German and Israeli leaders before the creation of the respective states. So, for example, in the book, I also have an example where the future prime minister of the German Democratic Republic, in fact, leaves open the option of a a collective payment to the state of Israel, as well as other smaller kinds of financial support at a time in which the state of Israel had not been founded yet. So they met in, in April 1948. And the timing of this is important also because you have to remember that the Soviet Union at the time was a very important supporter of the state of Israel. In fact, the Soviets interpreted the creation of the state of Israel as a very positive development, and they saw this in a way that would uh, uh, push the Brits out of uh, of the Middle East. So they, they were very much in support of this. We usually remember that the United States recognized Israel de facto 11 minutes after the, the establishment of the, the state of Israel. But in fact, the Soviet Union was the first state that recognized Israel the Jure. So from a legal perspective, three days later. Initially, there was an East German openness to discuss the the collective compensation payments. This was also supported more broadly by the geographic or geopolitical actually context of the time. So this important Soviet Union approach to the Middle East and to the creation of the state of Israel. But within a few years, things changed remarkably. So the Soviets changed radically their approach to the Middle East. And these together with the very substantial reparations that East Germany was paying to the Soviet Union. So the fact that East Germany also economically was very uh, weak and in a sense vexed by by the superpower. So it would probably have struggled to pay reparations. Also, I think it's, it's important to say, but politically, very importantly, all the prospect of even talking about uh, this Wiedergutmachung essentially disappeared in just a couple of years and not only this but also the propaganda in the in the east german state became increasingly more anti-israeli more anti-semitic very often as well so yes there was an openness to this but de facto in terms of party line uh, and in terms of also the line of the party of the soviet union this completely became a very remote possibility in just a couple of years. One of the key things in your book that you mentioned about East and West Germany relations with Israel was their relations to other Arab nations that were the declared enemies of Israel. I mean, one of the things with West Germany was that they that the Arab countries were against the reparations as funding of Israel. I, I was wondering how those nations justified that in the moral sense, because the reparations had the stated goal of having to do with the Holocaust? Yeah, that's uh, that's another very important question and a very complex one. So 
in terms of what I could see by looking, for example, at the documents of the Arab League or uh, getting access to some of the papers about exchanges between Syrians and French or Americans and, and British also discussing this question of West German-Israeli reparations talks, the fear of the Arab states was essentially about a the possibility that these reparations would strengthen the young state of Israel from an economic perspective, from a military perspective. This was crucial within the, also these discussions in, within the Arab League at the time. And the West Germans tried really to reassure the Arab states that this was not going to be the case. There was also a very specific list of the types of materials that West Germany could send the Israelis because uh, these reparations were paid in. They were material reparations that were also, you know, and the West Germans were also very much trying to calm Arab fears in this regard. And you have to imagine also, in a sense, the, the mindset of the Arab leaders of the time that had been collectively defeated by this very small, incredibly young state that was absolutely broke as well. It was very young and poor, and yet it had managed to defeat a coalition of Arab states that had declared war against it one day after the establishment. So this was something that was very alive also in the in the collective psyche of the Arab leaders, just to put it uh, very uh, broadly. And this was also the subject of a lot of talks, as I mentioned before, not just between the, let's say, Arab states and West Germany, but also the Arab states tried to mobilize the Western allies, so France, Britain, the United States, to try and uh, warn them about the possible consequences. There was, of course, also the discussion of the Palestinian refugees of the 48-49 war, which for the Israelis is remembered as the war of independence, but for the Palestinians and in the, in the Arab world is generally referred to as the Nakba, the catastrophe. So what to do with these Palestinian refugees and the point that some of these uh, Arab leaders were making, so in particular Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, with these Western allies, was that the Palestinian refugees somehow should benefit from any future German reparations to Israel. But the response that arrived, both from West Germany and from the Western allies, was that the two issues, so on the one hand, West Germany and Israel, and on the other, Israel and the Arab states, they were fundamentally separate. And so these questions could not be discussed together. Did that allow West Germany to have a better, better negotiations and trade with Arab nations? Or was that plea sort of ignored? It's, it's an interesting point. So in general terms, the Arab states were always very important for, for West Germany. A lot of the West German political, but also economic establishment, they really did their best not to alienate the Arab states. One thing was, of course, trying to um, make sure also with the support of the Western allies to make clear to the Arab states that what West Germany was agreeing upon with Israel was nothing to do with an anti-Arab feeling, but was something completely separate and, and arising out of a specific history, so the Holocaust and the aftermath. But at the same time, and this is also largely what my book is about, there were many other ways in which the West Germans tried a peace, in a sense, or calm the Arab leaders. And one of this became, importantly, the refusal to establish diplomatic relations with the State of Israel until 1965. So 
quite late or more than 15 years after the state was founded. This was one aspect. In terms of commercial relations, West Germany became very, very strong in a relatively short period of time, also thanks to the support of the martial uh, aid that West Germany was receiving. And so from a diplomatic and commercial economic perspective, there were really many initiatives that the Federal Republic of Germany put in place, also cultural, other uh, series of initiatives as well, um, to keep overall a good relationship with the Arab states. And I would also say that largely West Germany also succeeded in this because there were crises, often also related to West Germany-Israeli relations, but overall it was a, it's the history of a strong partnership overall. And what was uh, Adenauer trying to achieve when he first started to attempt reconciliation with Israel? Yeah, that's another very important question. And uh, there is no easy answer here. I think that Adenauer was moved also by, I consider, a real willingness to engage with the Israelis, but also, yeah, to put an end to what had happened earlier with the rise of the Nazis to power and, and the Holocaust. I say this at the time in, at the same time in the book, I am quite severe with Adenauer because I also think that there were important pragmatic considerations uh, connected to this as well. These considerations also had to do with, for example, strengthening the position of the Federal Republic of Germany internationally. So some of my early examples in the book are the fact that every time West Germany was somehow participating in an international meeting or in an international forum, for example, uh, within the UN, even though uh, West Germany didn't become a member until much later, but still they were there, Israeli representatives were very adamant in highlighting that look, it's not okay that West Germany is sitting here. How is this possible that Germany is again accepted in the family of nations? So, of course, there was a willingness to, to change the international perception of Germany after the Holocaust. And reconciliation with Israel, or really just establishing these relations, uh, they were also an important component in presenting the Federal Republic as a responsible, legitimate actor in international politics. At the same time, I'm not making the argument that this was exclusively what drove Adenauer, uh, but this certainly also helped. And what was, what was the drive for legitimacy? Like, what was that based on? Just in terms of the UN, it, it makes sense that they were um, tired or even afraid of like maybe losing membership or certainly having less of an influence within the UN if they're constantly being attacked by Israeli representatives. But what was behind their sort of West Germany and also East Germany's drive to seek that, that mantle of legitimate Germany, of the legitimate Germany, as well as just international legitimacy? Yeah, I think, again, very good points. There is just one thing I want to add to just the answer I gave you now, which complicates the, the history, but it is also very true. So it, I think it's also important to remember that while Adenauer openly and on the international stage was highlighting the West German readiness to atone for the past, to deal with the past and establish strong relations with Israel as much as this was possible at the time. Um, within West Germany, there was a very high reintegration of personnel that had been active during the years of the Nazi regime. And this 
really involved the diplomatic sector, military sector, but also judges, the judiciary, and many, many others. So it's a very complex um, question, this one. But I think in terms of the broader quest for legitimacy at the international level, I think this is something that is important beyond the two uh, German states. If you think about it, also in the broader global Cold War, each of the two superpowers was not just interested in having the uh, best armaments or the, the strongest economies. It was always also a competition for legitimacy, for a way of life uh, and all that came with it as the representation of a better one. I think that this also very much played out in the competition between the two German states, but I think that more broadly is something that we really see internationally as playing an important role, in addition to the more traditional sources of power. So in a sense, I guess I'm uh, making an implicit reference to soft power concepts as well, and how they in fact also play a role in international politics. In in the book, you talk about the U.S.'s influence in terms of getting West Germany to, was it speed up their, the reparations process with Israel? So what was the U.S. interest um, in that interaction? Yeah, the U.S. interests and the U.S. roles were very multifaceted in a sense. And I think it's important before I really delve into the topic of the U.S. role and the U.S. interest in this to remind everyone that, in fact, the initiative did come from the Israelis, and uh, the talks were especially between Israel and the Federal Republic, uh, and that this was not initiated by the United States. It is true that eventually, when the negotiations became stalled, and that happened quite quickly because there was a, there were very very difficult negotiations. It is true that eventually U.S. diplomats did nudge the chancellor to actually conclude the agreement and to do so in a way that would be, in a sense, appropriate to the fact that these talks had started first and foremost. So I think in that sense, there was an interest in just avoiding a big scandal if West Germany had not been able to, to finish this, these negotiations based on what they themselves had agreed to do before the negotiations started, because there had been also a preliminary informal talk. And on this question of the US and the US role, I would also like to highlight that the United States was not unmistakably and continuously supportive of the West German-Israeli ties. And at a certain point, especially during or in the immediate aftermath of the Suez War, so in 1956, Eisenhower, also the US president, also considered the possibility to put pressure on West Germany to halt these uh, payments to Israel as a way to put pressure on Israel as well. So it's a, it's a complex it's a complex position, the one of the United States, and certainly vis-a-vis -vis West Germany and vis-a-vis -vis Israel. And these are relations that changed very much also through the period that I look at. So from the early 50s until essentially the end of the 1960s. By the end of the 1960s, for example, the US and Israel were on much better and, and stronger terms than, for example, under Eisenhower, right, in the mid-1950s. So the US role was certainly important, but multifaceted, and it changed with the time. I mean, you write in the book, that, quote, the West German diplomats who from the early 1950s onward had insistently advocated keeping the Jewish state at a distance had all served in the foreign office during the Nazi era. And did that same 
sort of theme, did that play out also in East German relations with Israel? Or was that actually unique to the West German experience with bringing um, Nazi era officials back in? Yeah, this is uh, another very, very good question. So it is true, as I said before, that there was a high level of reintegration of personnel from the Nazi era in many key and many key institutions in West Germany. For the East German diplomats that I personally looked at, uh, this was less the case. And East German propaganda always insisted that West Germany was full of Nazis and that this did not apply at all to East Germany. The reality is a lot more complex than that. And there has been research also about the past of key functionaries in East Germany. More research on this is also coming. And I think that one should be a little bit careful to just, yeah, to make such a sort of strong uh, distinction between the two. But in the specific, on the specific point of diplomats, yes, the ones whose papers I read in the West German archive of the foreign ministry, they had been diplomats in the, in also during the, the Nazi era. The ones who I especially focused on, especially then looking at the making of an East German-Israeli series of relations, which was not at all successful and was not uh, really official ever, but their past was different. And in fact, often, and this was also very interesting for me to see and to find out as I was doing the research, some of them, so people who ended up working in the East German and Israeli um, diplomatic services and who would meet in third countries such as Czechoslovakia to discuss possible relations, they often knew each other from before the war. So they were sometimes also just family friends. I have one of these interactions uh, in the book as well. And this is a part of the history that I also would not have been able to access without the oral history interviews that I mentioned earlier. So the, the short answer is that, yes, there was this distinction, but I think it's important to take this with a pinch of salt and for example the works of uh, Mary Fulbrook who is a very prominent historian of, of Germany also highlights that there had been continuities within East German institutions as well and there is also more research on this coming. Given the emphasis you put on minor individuals as well as the the typical most powerful individuals while researching the book did you see that each individual had less power in establishing relations or continuing relations than you normally thought or was it just a matter of actually there's more influence even by more minor people. I have to say it really, no, doing this research really strengthened my belief in the importance of everyone's responsibility and room for maneuver in international politics or even really just our surroundings. I, I very much believe this. This was confirmed to me many times because what makes international politics is really a myriad of different interactions, different topics of interaction as well. So even culture, opening a certain library, playing certain music, this can be a political act as well that can also lead to important political outcomes also. So yes, I really think that everyone can make a difference. And this was this belief was really strengthened during the course of the research. And going to my closing questions, who is a scholar or scholars who had a big impact on your intellectual upbringing? Yeah, this is there is so many. So I'll try and uh, and be quick here. I have benefited enormously from engaging with uh, fantastic historians of the Cold War, historians of 
Germany and especially dealing with the past, uh, Germany is dealing with the past um, historians of the Middle East and of Middle Eastern politics and, uh, and international relations. So the Cold War historians whose work I admire and the conversation with whom were absolutely crucial are, um, well, for example, Campbell Craig, my PhD supervisor, but also the work of Sergei Radchenko, Jim Hirschberg, Christian Osterman. For example, the work of Hope Harrison on East German-Soviet relations was for me absolutely eye-opening. And Hope, Hope Harrison is also using these sort of the Tony Smith uh, approach, so highlighting just how much power the East Germans could have vis-a-vis -vis the Soviets in a way that one wouldn't think of usually. Mary Sarote, whose work on uh, the post-Cold War setting has just come out, these are all absolutely fundamental authors for me. I was also very lucky because I managed to spend quite a lot of time in Germany and in Israel. And in Germany, I was affiliated with the Jena Center for the History of the 20th Century, led by Norbert Frey. And Norbert Frey is one of the historians who really made an incredible contribution in understanding the complexity of Adenauer's Germany, including its dealing with the past. So dealing with him and with the historians that were active at his center, Christina Maya, Jakob Eder, many others, was very, very important for me also. In terms of my stay in Israel, I was affiliated there at the Hebrew University with the Center for German History, which is chaired by Ofer Ashkenazi, and all the team there, including the, the former director, Moshe Zimmerman, many others, uh, working on this German-German-Israeli uh, relationship from Jerusalem, from that center, was very, very important for me. So I realize it's a long list, but it really takes a village to raise any scholar, and, and it's a pleasure to also, yeah, make their names public. And who is a younger scholar or younger scholars people should pay more attention to? Yeah, also an interesting question. So last uh, spring, I sat on a PhD committee that was examining a very good PhD thesis at Cambridge University by uh, Philip Heer. And now Dr. Hirsch, uh, he writes on German-Arab relations. We disagree on uh, some uh, issues, but definitely a young scholar that I think is in, it will be interesting to, to look at in, in the future. And another one who is a very experienced diplomat, in fact, but who recently got the PhD, wrote about German-Israeli relations, but in the 1990s, early 2000s, a period in which he himself was posted in Berlin as an Israeli diplomat. So I think for those who are interested in the topic, these are two upcoming books, I hope, that will be very interesting to, to read. And how do you as a historian read the news in a way that's different from the standard uh, haphazard manner? Yeah, well, I guess there is this eagerness for analysis and trying to understand the causes of events, which is not just about getting the, the news and the updates about the specific facts of what happened, but I always and uh, also encourage my students to try and understand why the causes of the events and also looking at the, the yeah the quality of the narrative the analysis these are really really important elements for me and that's also yeah it shapes how i read the news and also which news i read in in which way and do current students know more than athenian students did in the time of the peloponnesian war yeah, really, I, I love this question. It's a very difficult one. I think that's maybe, well, I think it's impossible to answer, honestly. So what I suggest we do is that instead of thinking about 
who knows more and in a certain trying to compete with the Athenian students at the time of the Peloponnesian War, we can ask ourselves, okay, what can we still learn from their studies of the Peloponnesian War? I'm thinking, of course, about Thucydides, who wrote uh, this very famous history. And, for example, looking again at how he mentions how thoroughly he tried to check the accounts that he was gathering uh, in his oral, what we today call the oral history interviews, and uh, the notion of bias that he also makes very uh, explicit about trying to, he doesn't use this language, but he does write also about the importance of triangulating sources, namely checking sources against each other in order to really understand the causes of events. And he also has this great quote, which I absolutely agree with. He puts it in the mouth of Pericles, the, the leader. And among the various things that Pericles says is that our love for the things of the mind does not make us soft. And I think that this is one of the several things that we can still learn from them without really knowing if we know more or less. Professor DeVita, thank you for being part of IR Talk. Thank you so much for having me. This was really a very great interview. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to IR Talk. Again, if you enjoyed the episode, I would really appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. See you on the next episode. Thank you.